Hi, everyone. I'm David Williams, president of strategy consulting firm Health Business Group and host of the Health Biz Podcast, a weekly show where I interview top healthcare entrepreneurs about their lives and careers. If you like this episode, make sure to hit that like button and to subscribe. My guest today is Jean Druin, founder and CEO of Clarify Health Solutions. Jean, welcome to the Health Biz Podcast. David, pleasure to join you. Thank you for the invitation. Now, listen, Clarify Health is super uh, impressive. Everybody tells me how great it is. I assume you'll, you'll tell me the same. But I want to hear a little bit about how you got there and maybe just starting way back uh, with your background, your upbringing. You know, what was your childhood like? Any childhood influences that have stuck with you to this day? Sure. So as you can probably guess from the French sounding name, uh, I didn't grow up in the U.S. I grew up in uh, Montreal and Quebec City in Canada and uh, learned English actually when my family moved to Ottawa when I was uh, eight years old. Um, I come from a family of physicians. So my dad's an immunologist. My grandfather was a cardiologist who brought back the first um, x-ray machine to Quebec City from Paris on the last boat before World War II. And my great-grandfather was a GP working in the logging camps um, in Quebec. So um, I suppose I've had a lot of, or dealt with a lot of healthcare um, growing up. And uh, actually, interestingly, initially, I wasn't thinking about going into healthcare. I had it in my mind that I would go to law school and into politics in Canada. Um, but eventually, apparently, the gravitational pull of you know, being in healthcare and helping, you know, in society just uh, came a little too great. I, I came at it in a roundabout way. I was working for the Mandela government in South Africa just after college, um, helping figure out how to bring electricity to the townships and uh, realized, you know what? Uh, the industry I'm really passionate about ultimately is healthcare. And uh, I'm going to go to medical school, which I did. When I went, I was 50 50 as to whether I practice. Um, three months into med school, about halfway through the anatomy class, I decided I wasn't going to practice. That said, I was going to finish because it was such an amazing experience. And ultimately, I had this inkling that it would really help out and that I would end up in some role somehow helping to work on fixing the health system. Now, what happened is I ended up back um, at McKinsey uh, thinking I'd do two years and get my school loans paid off. And then, you know, sometimes in life you have to go with serendipity. And uh, I got asked on what I thought was going to be my last project to go over to London to help uh, set up the UK's new hospital regulator, which turned out to be code for Tony Blair really wants to reform the National Health Service and yeah. bring in more value-based payment models. Uh, and uh, three months turned into eight years in the UK. Oh, that's a pretty good story. So that you know, as childhood influences go, that's uh, that's a pretty good uh, roundabout uh, you know uh, trip from from Quebec to South Africa back somewhere and then over to to London and got stuck. But you didn't get stuck there forever. But it sounds like the, uh, as you said, the gravitational pull of, uh, of healthcare brought you back one way or the other. You know, I think a lot of the people I talk to on the, on the podcast who are in healthcare, their parents were in healthcare, physicians or whatever. One guy is actually named Doctor, Michael Doctor. 
And I asked him, like, how did you decide to become a doctor? And, and the, he took the question seriously. You know, his parents were doctors. He helped people when he was a kid. And then, you know, he became a doctor. It's like, you already were a doctor. You didn't even have to go to medical school, you know, for that. But uh, but that sounds, um, you know, that's, that sounds pretty well, good. Yeah, I have a funny story for you. Back when I was debating whether to go to medical school or not, uh, the head of the Canadian office for McKinsey, this guy, Ron Farmer, was a bit of a legend. And... Uh, he said, wait a second, a bit like what you just said, I can go buy you a medical degree in Mexico. If, if what you want is the title, we can, we, we can yeah. deliver it. And uh, what I'll never forget is, uh, and then they had somebody else come in and say, are you really sure you want to go? Because in life, you want to grow at this rate. And, you know, in, in medical school, it's a lot of memorization and whatnot. And, um, but the funny thing was, is, it's the humanity of the experience and going through each of the rotations and actually seeing with your own eyes how the healthcare system works. And because I'd been at McKinsey for a couple of years before going to medical school, every time I walked into a situation, I was like, this is unbelievable how screwed up this is from a production system point of view. So I, I think I went through medical school with a very different lens on how I was experiencing it, given the background that I had had, uh, you know, working in consulting for a few years before that. So what was the experience like at McKinsey? You were there for quite a while. And as I saw it, some of the time on the client service side, but it looks like you're also involved in some other initiatives there um, as well. Yeah, uh, I would say it turned out for me to be an incredibly varied experience where I had an unusual chance to be what you might call an intrapreneur. So an entrepreneur within a bigger company. It turned out that when I got to London and we started working with the National Health Service, uh, McKinsey hadn't done a ton of government work at that point, certainly in healthcare. And, uh, you know, we ended up uh, with quite a broad relationship with the National Health Service. And one of the things that happened was the UK government centralized uh, the administration of the National Health Service into nine regions. And so London was aggregated into one region. And they, they appointed a force of nature CEO, this woman, Ruth Carnell, Dame Ruth Carnell, who walked in one day and she said, hey, listen, I will partner with McKinsey in a very deep way. But here's the thing, you have to come and work for me full-time as the head of strategy and the budget to help set this up. And McKinsey had never loaned out a partner full-time and said, well, you can't do this. And yeah. I said, well, actually, look, the world has changed. <laughs> I am going to do this. And so I ended up having this experience when I was 32 or 33. Uh, effectively, Ruth walks in and says, hey, this is the way it's going to work. Here's my pen. The CEOs of the hospitals are going to come. If there's not going to be a political issue, then sign off on their business plans, new MRI machine, new wing, whatnot. And if there is going to be an issue, let me know, because that's what I have to manage. And that experience was incredibly formative because I learned very quickly, it doesn't matter how smart you are. It doesn't matter how great the policies you think you're going to put in place are. You know, the fundamental issue or one of the fundamental issues with looking at a health system is sure the health economists will tell you 20% of 25% of spend is wasted. The issue is, is that waste isn't hiding out in plain sight in two or three places and you change two or three laws and bang, you're done. 
it's stuck in every little micro decision that's made in every patient journey. And when you stack up every patient journey, it adds up to total spend. And some of that spend just isn't that helpful. Um, and so I came away from that experience with a very clear view that what's missing in healthcare is a real-time patient journey optimization system. And the payment models to pay based on that. Um, the only thing is in 2008, the data didn't exist to even dream of putting that together at the time. Um, and I believe, by the way, one of the big reasons why value-based payment models haven't taken off is because fundamentally, we've been trying to impose uh, structures where we don't have good enough insights to be fair about the bonuses and the penalties that we're handing out. Yeah, fair enough. I think it's some great insights. You know, one of the things that I think holds us back in the U.S. is that we we don't have a perspective on healthcare systems in other parts of the world. We tend to sort of you know look look down on them and I'll make certain assumptions about uh, you know how they work. And I think the U.K. is is a good example. So you know you talk about uh, for example here people talk about waiting lists uh, yep. in the U.K. Here people say that and say you know that you have to wait for care. But what I found in looking uh, you know on NHS websites, you can actually look and see what those waiting lists are and what the time is for different services in different regions. Try to get the same information here in the U.S. and you can't do it. You know, the best you can find is a journal article of somebody calling around uh, dermatology offices with the, the best um, example of a, an emergency they could have, a changing mole, and ask for an appointment. And you see how far out you went. And this was in Boston, I think. I'm remembering the, this journal article. So there isn't anything even systematic about it. So the... Um, on the one hand, it's, it's interesting about we, we tend to overlook the kind of the insights and the accountability that are in some of the other systems. And then the other thing I hadn't appreciated is that there is an appetite in some of these systems, in, in particular in the UK, even for like US style uh, management and insights. So some of the people that I meet, like for from the Institute for Healthcare Improvement and stuff like that, or even ICER uh, here, some of their best, uh, some, some of the most uh, receptive audiences they have are actually somewhere else. So I'm just guessing that some of those experiences have helped uh, inform what you've done with, uh, with Clarify. Well, they have. I mean, I think one of the biggest learnings for me was however it is you incentivize and pay for healthcare has both positive and then unintended consequences. So fee-for-service is quite immediate right and its reward and encourages activity and so as a result of it for certain things if you have the luxury of access in the u.s you do get care very quickly and it tends to be very good care you know a system like england's is based on budgets and people are salaried and so you end up you know with if you have uh, basic needs or chronic disease you're taken care of very well uh, as you say, there are wait lists and there is rationing for things like um, hip replacements. So it's almost like you have to choose your benefits and your poison or disincentives, if yeah. you will. And the dream here is to create a system and a set of insights that helps both uh, solitudes, if you will, the fee-for-service one and the budget-based ones to be able to deliver far more effective and efficient healthcare. Yeah. 
Well, good. Well, the good news is that there's, uh, you know, there's a long career to be made doing that. I was happy when I was, when you talked about being 32 or 33, which, which I was some, some time ago, uh, and thinking at the time where there was like the telecom bust, I said, well, I'm glad I'm working in healthcare because I'll have something to do. And then not that I'm going to retire anytime soon, but as I look ahead and I say, you know, is, are things still are going to be solved by the time I'm retired? Or are we going to be still back at uh, square one? And well, I think we've made progress in some areas. I think it's an, it's an open, it's an open question and maybe clarify can help that. So you had a real clear reason to go and do this unusual thing in the in the UK as a McKinsey partner, but you're not doing that anymore. So you know why did you find why did you found Clarify? What was the unmet need? What was the impetus to do it? Sure. So deep down, I I had this thing where the people I most respected were my medical school classmates who had had the guts, in my view, to go and start companies. Some of them were in biotech. Some of them were in healthcare services, and. Uh, as you know, I mentioned, I had this idea of, okay, healthcare is ultimately a giant production optimization problem. And uh, late 2014, I had a bit of an aha moment. I said, wait a sec, Niall Brennan and Patrick Conway and their friends at Medicare are about to make all of their data available. And cloud computing is now becoming a real thing and enabling things like machine learning and AI. Now, I think of machine learning and AI as the application of known statistical method with lots of computing power that allows us to now do better analytics. Okay, I, let, let's simplify it. And then um, that was the second thing. The third thing, which I got horribly wrong, was Hillary's going to get elected and Patrick and her friends at Medicare are going to make bundled payments and other value-based payment models mandatory. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, <laughs> but yeah, Hillary, Hillary went in another direction and so did Patrick for a while, but that's another story. Correct. So um, that was enough, though, to convince me to take the jump. And I had the amazing fortune of being introduced by a mutual friend to my co-founder, Todd Gatula. Todd had been the chief technology officer in, at a company called Advent Software in the financial technology industry. Advent had built the cloud platforms used by Goldman, JP Morgan, and others to take all of the world's trading information across equities, bonds, et cetera, and in real time, mark the books back to market. And where it got interesting when Todd and I met was Todd said, yeah, we're applying machine learning and AI to forecast the value of derivatives. And I said, wait a second, farmer hedges against the weather, weather hasn't happened yet. You, And he said, yeah. And I said, well, look, in my world, it's a patient comes in with a set of clinical and social characteristics and their journey hasn't happened yet. And so effectively what Clarify is, is the application of very powerful financial services uh, analytics technology married together with one of the largest ever patient level data sets. We now have data on over 300 million Americans uh, and we see both what's gone on clinically and how they behave, both in terms of the types of things that go into credit scores, but also the food that people buy, credit card purchasing history, et cetera. And we are able to use that data in a de-identified way to be able to do these kinds of things. So one is better understand who are the best clinicians out there. Now, what is it that clinicians say anytime you compare them? They say, whoa, whoa, whoa my patients are different. Yeah. They're always more complex, right? right. In fact, we should set up an award where the first clinician that says my patients are simpler, they, they win yeah. the award. <laughs> so 
what we did is we said, we're going to solve this problem, in, which is obviously a problem of trust. What's the industry that has best solved the problem of assessing differential human performance? It's baseball. So we said, fine, we're going to apply baseball money ball or wins above replacement analytics to healthcare. Yeah. Now, why are we able to do that now? Because we have a large enough data set. The next rejoinder was, well, it's not EMR data. I said, sure, but it's every other piece of data in the country. And by the way, what, what's a claim? A claim is what comes out of an EMR. I mean, the purpose of an EMR is to generate claims. So we have solved that problem of assessing physician and hospital performance in a fairer way, and we combine it with an ability to forecast how patients are likely to trend through their journeys based on their needs. As a result of that, we've been able effectively to create the first ever Bloomberg terminal for healthcare, where we enable lots of business problems faced by hospitals, payers, and life sciences companies to be solved by rapidly accessing insights on what are the best referrals, who are the best doctors, how can people improve, how do you more quickly find patients for clinical trials. Those are the questions that are business applications off of our platform help um, hospitals, payers, life science companies to solve. So that's how we started. Now where we're going ultimately is to be the platform that enables value-based payment models to be trusted, automated, and far easier to deploy. So did you have that same kind of vision when you got started? It sounds fairly you know, linear and pretty pretty clear of an arc. Did you know that's where you're going? Well, we had a sense that that's where it could go. Uh, when you start, you have to be incredibly focused and incredibly humble. Healthcare is quite hard after all. And so initially we said, hey, we're going to provide the best possible patient journey analytics for anybody that's in bundled payment programs. And based on that, we'll expand. And truth be told, our first customers, John Muir Health in the Bay Area and Hogue in Orange County, ended up quite quickly using the insights we provided being some of the best at generating value, i.e. surplus, from bundle payment programs. Thankfully for us, we got far enough along with that that we were able to uh, convince KKR in 2018 to back our Series B just at the time that Tom Price basically killed all bundle yeah. payments. So then we had just like he just like snuffed it briefly, right? It was it was more like it's more like one of those like those birthday candles, you know, you blow it out and it looks like it's out for a while and then it 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 springs back. Although I'm not sure it sprung back of its own accord. Correct. And um but we were able to move from just 40 million lives of Medicare data to 300 million plus lives and in healthcare I what we say is you have to be a pragmatic idealist. So we said fine, we're going to provide analytics for the problems that people have today. So how do hospitals make money? They make money by optimizing referrals and bringing in more referrals and uh, the right patients and then providing the right care. We'll provide you analytics for that. How does a payer make money? Well, they pick the best docs to put it in their networks in you know, geographic areas. They help them to improve and they want to understand their risk. And so we said, we'll provide you analytics to do that. Uh, and that's what effectively took us to where we are today. And what's happening is 
it's interesting, the commercial payers are now wanting to accelerate the adoption of value-based payment models. And their issue is that they have multiple models and contract to manage across multiple lines of business, Medicare, Medicaid, et cetera. And they need a way to, instead of managing this on spreadsheets, to digitally load in the contract rules and have a trusted third party that says, hey, here's the baseline performance before, here's the baseline after based on the rules, here's who gets what, and ideally eliminate this notion of two revenue cycle armies fighting over each other, which doesn't do anything for patient value ultimately. Right. So, you know, you talked about being humble before, which is great. But now let's say you've achieved some degree of success and we'll just talk about, you know, value-based care. One of the reasons you said it wasn't working before is you don't really have a way to, to measure it and know if you're, you know, you can, you can put rewards and punishments, but are you really doing the right thing? Uh, but in principle, people would like to have value-based care. It's good for the patient. It's, you know, it's good presumably for the payer and, and good for the providers that are, that are doing a good job and you don't have all this, this sort of friction of the administrative side. To what extent does Clarify actually enable that to occur, stepping out of the kind of the humble side? I mean, is it just, hey, now you're the missing piece and now it can happen? Uh, okay, great question. Uh, there are various payers out there that have um, RFPs or competitive processes ongoing uh, wanting to bring in technology to automate some of the challenges that as I've talked about and there are vendors that go in and they say hey here's the technology the technology will solve it um, fundamentally though at the end of the day this is a problem that can be uh, helped to be solved by technology but the root of the issue is one of behavior change on the ground in terms of how decisions are made today and one of the fundamental issues right there is one of trust, right? The doctors are saying, wait a sec, you want me to move from what I understand, which is fee-for-service, to some new way of paying for me. You better be able to convince me that I'm going to be the same or better off on the other side with less administrative hassle. Otherwise, it's, it's, it's no use for me. So what I always say is the technology can help and you have to be willing to collaborate with the docs and offer them payment models that they're going to want. I do believe, though, that what we are doing, there, there's one critical difference that will help to enable in a way that hasn't been enabled before. So the bundles, ACOs, etc., all rely on a retrospective look back that says, how did you do? And based on that, there might be a pot of gold for you on the other end. What if, though, you had good enough analytics to say, David just came in. David needs a hip replacement. David's otherwise healthy. David's hip does not need to get done in an expensive in-hospital setting. could be done in an ambulatory surgery center. We all know that that's cheaper and lower length of stay, less risk of infection, et cetera. Because we know it's a good thing, David's not going to have to wait a year for a bonus. At the end of the week, there's a bonus in his bank account. And what if you could replicate that across a multiplicity of use cases, uh, a drug substitution, choosing the right imaging modality, not ordering unnecessary tests, et cetera. 
And so effectively what you have is this notion that there are actionable appropriateness metrics across various specialties that you can measure. And as people do these things, you can re reward them immediately. That's why we bought Embedded Healthcare, Zeke Emanuel's company, yeah. a few months ago, because Zeke's vision for that, we firmly believe, is what will ultimately unlock uh, value-based care. But, you know, the irony is, is it's taking fee-for-service and making fee-for-service valuable. So, look, I, I would say this, the way to value-based care is actually by making fee-for-service more noble and valuable. That's great. See, it gives some pretty good answers to my questions here. You know, it made me forget that when you're talking about Niall Brennan, one of the reasons that you, you've been successful enough, you've got the resources, now you went and hired him, even though he's a, uh, yeah, he's a, he, he's a podcast guest too. He beat you to it. He's been on the Health of His podcast before. And, and actually, I spoke to Zeke Emanuel recently on another podcast that I, that I co-host, and he, he is describing himself as like the lonely guy. You know, He's the only one that seems to care about long COVID. He's wearing a mask, and he's like, you know, he's just in his own. He he seemed to be concerned if if he was still attached to society. But I'm glad that uh, he's embedded in it uh, enough. I guess he's given that up now as well uh, that you've taken it over. Well, and we're working very closely, and it's he's been incredibly inspiring, as has Niall. Yeah, uh, we're incredibly you know fortunate to uh, and and to have him on the bath as well, helping us out and um, now look, it's healthcare, right? A great innovation takes. 17 years, right? That yeah. Was this, That's still, years. are we still using that number? <laughs> it certainly feels like a trying yeah. to scale company. Let me tell you that. <laughs> I think it's like that. I think they use the 17 number partly because it was empirically derived and partly I think that's like the cycle of the locust. So, uh, so it's like when the locust comes back out. For yeah, it. I haven't heard that one, but it, it's, it's good. Yeah. So on the value-based care side, I have a question may not be completely pertinent to, to clarify, but you know, one of the issues with having all these different payers is not just getting the data, but it's also the incentives are different for the same provider, depending on what patient they're seeing and in what context. So as maybe a stark example, if I'm a hospital, the way I can make a lot of money in fee for service is by having somebody on a, a patient on a specialty drug that's administered in the hospital. So somebody has sick, let's say with cancer, uh, if they have one type of insurance or one type of a, of a contract, it's going to be better to have them go home and have an oral med. And, it, and another one, it's going to be better for them to be at the hospital and, and be infused. And it's the same oncologist. So can somebody actually work in that environment? Or, does, or do we have to get like to the, does it have to be 80% value-based care before it works at all? Or, you know, can these things coexist? So uh, a few years ago, I would have said to you, it needs to go to 80%, otherwise it's not going to work. I now have more faith that we can get to the degree of personalization that we need to be able to be discerning enough to uh, operate in different modes. Now, there's an ethical question around, should we even have that? Let, yeah. Let's just put that one to the side. Yeah, one question at a time, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly. um, it is now possible. You know how when you and I have to download a widget on our computer like Zoom or yeah. And it takes a few minutes and then presto, you, yeah. you, you have the capability. There is now technology where you can download a widget onto any EMR. And that widget 
looks and feels to you as if it's from that EMR and can provide you instantaneous decision support. So you can envision a world where you instantaneously confirm that this is the member, that this is the coverage of the member, and for the incentive of the practitioner seeing that member is to prioritize ABC. Yeah. Uh, That is not the world of science fiction so much anymore. Now, deploying that at scale, I would give a three to five year time frame. Yeah. Um, it's, It's possible though. And as a result of being able to entertain something like that, you see how it could dramatically decrease the activation energy um, to moving to value-based models. Now, if you are a brick-and-mortar hospital that has just spent a billion dollars building a facility that has a 30-year depreciation schedule, it is going to be tough no matter what because care is moving to the home. Care is moving to CVS, Amazon, and Walmart. Care is moving... Um, you know, to telemedicine. And so your ability to fill the box um, is going to be, well, and, you know, monetize the box or defray the cost of the box is going to be challenged moving forward. And, you know, intriguingly, I, I look at the hospital sector and I say, wow, the ones who've been moving aggressively, for example, to partner with or buy ASCs, partner with or buy home care capabilities, feel to me like they recognize this and are setting themselves up to be able to be successful no matter what the payment models are. You know, another interesting thing has happened since you mentioned, you know, Tom Price, who was probably against uh, value-based care, just as a physician preferred the you know fee-for-service kind of revenue maximization. But one thing that's been different, you know, under the Biden administration compared to under the, uh, his predecessor, was trying to make value-based care also tied in with increased equity, which was never a concept uh, before. Do you think those two things go together? Is that, is that a good way to achieve you know greater equity in healthcare to have more value-based care? Uh, I think that's all down to the way you write a contract. And it's one could absolutely, well, it's going to be hard to get to, and this is, you know, Jean, the individual talking, yeah. right? I just, we, we, we are, I already asked the fair questions. Now we're in the section where I ask the unfair questions. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. Um, System wide equity, which is if you're Biden, presumably what you're speaking of. Yeah. Right going to be hard to deliver that in a world where some people have gold-plated plans, you know, sponsored by well-to-do employers. Some have not so great plans by employers who are more challenged. And you have folks who don't even have uh, access. If one's talking about equity at that level, I don't think that has anything to do with value-based care. That has to do with how we choose to pay for health insurance broad writ across the country. Because, yeah. Okay. Now, is it possible that you could put into contracts uh, or, if you will, standardize across contracts so that there's a basic package of care and services that is delivered to everyone across the U.S.? Sure, one could entertain that in contract design, 
That is where I believe the federal government can have an incredibly important role, which is to say in order to get federal funds for certain things or, you know, Medicare, any plan needs to be able to provide, you know, certain types of care. I think that's how you get to equity. And the value piece of it is then in delivering that basic package, are you doing so effectively and efficiently? Um, so I suppose, you know, my answer is they're related, but they're not the same. Fair enough. Well, now I'm going to ask you a question where you can't get yourself into trouble, so don't worry. So I saw there's an announcement that you made with DataVance, and I saw this term there, so I want to hear about like what's what's involved in that. You also use the term first-party data. So I've kind of heard a third party. What's first-party? And then is there a second party? <laughs> so uh, first-party data tends to mean that where you're getting it from is who generated it. Okay. So um, if a pharma company is generating, is doing a trial and generating data through the trial and you're directly helping the pharma company, they're dealing with their own first party data, right? Third party means that, yeah, you'll go to Datavon and you buy, you know, somebody else's yeah. um, data it's a good question i don't know who the second party is there may not be one it's one of those things you never really think about it until you say third party that makes sense but then when you say first party then wait a minute you know somebody's got to be in there. it's like it's like i know you're not from here but like you know there's like division one in college and there's division three there actually is a division two but it's pretty small and it's been getting smaller so maybe it's related to that we'll have to have a follow-up podcast on that question exactly Great. So I want to ask you um, about uh, just turning it now back to the personal side and ask about uh, reading. And in fact, if you have time to read any books and if there's anything you recommend and or in fact, anything you recommend we avoid. Ah, so in fact, I love reading um, and uh, it's uh, I think it's an important pleasure that if you love doing it's important to do it. Now, I, I tend to do it in the morning when I'm on uh, my exercise bike. And I love reading biographies of either great political leaders or scientists. And uh, the one I'm reading right now is uh, Einstein's biography uh, and by uh, Isaacson. And what I found interesting, I'm almost through it now, is I was like, wow, he was actually an ultimate physics entrepreneur. Uh, you know, when he came out with his theory of relativity, uh, it was incredibly countercultural in the physics world. And uh, talk about being stubborn and sticking up for yourself. Now, maybe there's also a lesson. He spent the last 30 years of his career trying to find a grand unification theory. And turns out that's not where one needed to go with subatomic particles. And uh, but yeah, look, I, um, I find it really, really interesting to hear things or lessons from other places and then try to apply them to the situations we're in. So, um, yeah, anybody who's intrigued by Einstein as a personality, it's a wonderful book. And obviously Isaacson's a great biographer. So, um, so sounds like a good combination. Will you give me one to avoid or <laughs> one to avoid? You don't have to do uh, that. Do you put down books if you don't like them? Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's funny. In college, we had a great Latin American history professor, and this is an interesting lesson. About five weeks in, he comes into the class, and it was so memorable. I still remember the room and, and where we were. 
he says, um, okay, you're all probably drowning in the amount of reading I've assigned. And and then he says, well, everybody raise your hands uh, if you've read everything. And, you know, a few people raise their hands. And he says, well, listen, I'm thrilled that you have, but I feel really, really sorry for you because he says, do you think I would ever assign you a bad book? (laughs) Uh, No. And he says, okay, well, what does a good book look like? Yeah. Good book has a great introduction, a great conclusion, and a set of chapters who also have great introductions and great conclusions. So he says, here's my advice to you in the future. Read the intro, read the conclusion, decide if you're now going to read the chapters and read the chapters in the same way. And then, <laughs> yeah, so I don't claim to read in that way necessarily, yeah. but um, it is a great way if you're not sure about a book, right, is go to the end. Now, obviously, if it's nonfiction, right. And back if it's fiction then you know you have to trust that the story is going to pick up makes me wonder how this guy eats his dinner but it's a uh it's an, <laughs> it's an interesting concept but we'll, we'll leave it there so john druin founder and ceo of clarify health solutions thank you so much for joining me today on the health biz podcast thank you david wonderful i had a great time You've been listening to the Health Biz Podcast with me, David Williams, president of Health Business Group. I conduct in-depth interviews with leaders in healthcare business and policy. If you like what you hear, go ahead and subscribe on your favorite service. While you're at it, go ahead and subscribe on your second and third favorite services as well. There's more good stuff to come, and you won't want to miss an episode. If your organization is seeking strategy consulting services in healthcare, check out our website, healthbusinessgroup.com.